is likely to increase, the actual cost will be much less. It does not cost the world to save the planet. The report calls for cuts in emissions across all sectors, particularly fossil fuel production and use. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Mike Weeks, along with Chris Oliver this morning. Brian Curtis still away on his holidays. China's Min Metals Corporation goes shop- shopping for a Peruvian copper mine. French office workers opt to unplug for- from office email after hours. And a UN report calls for the end of the carbon era. In our featured segments this morning, we'll look at the behavioral psychology of Hong Kong investors with Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management. We'll also talk about the changing monetary conditions and what that means for asset prices. Richard Duncan, an independent economist and author of the investment newsletter MacroWatch, will be joining us for that. We'll also speak to Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent in Washington. In U.S. markets on Friday, they ended on a weaker note, dragging the major indexes lower for the week. The S&P 500 slid 17.39%, or 1%, to close at 1,815 it lost 2.7% for the week. It was a similar story with the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which fell 0.9% to finish at 16,026 for the week. That's uh, a drop of 2.4% for the five-day trading period. The Nasdaq Composite was also lower, slipping 1.3% on Friday and down 3.1% for the week. First, though, to some news, uh, other news, and Glencore Extrata has sold its interest in its huge Las Bambas copper mine in Peru to a consortium led by Min Metals Corporation in a six billion US dollar cash deal, China's largest mining acquisition in recent years. Glencore had agreed to sell the mine to China to secure approval from Beijing's competition authorities for its takeover of Anglo-Swiss miner Extrata, which China feared would have too much power over the copper market. Hong Kong-based Guoxin International Investment and Citic Metal are the other partners in this consortium to take over Las Bambas, which is due to begin production in 2015. It's expected to produce more than 450,000 tonnes of copper a year in its first five years and 300,000 tonnes a year thereafter. Global Global financial services firm BTG has announced that it has received a strategic investment from Hong Kong-based brokerage and investment group CLSA. BTIG, which specializes in institutional trading and related brokerage services, says it and its global affiliates will continue to operate as a fully independent organization. In the last decade, BTG has grown from four individuals into a single, in a single office to over 450 professionals worldwide, working in nine U.S. offices and four international locations. A major UN report on tackling climate change has called for fossil fuels to be phased out. The authors say a massive increase in renewable sources of energy is needed, and unexpectedly they say the costs of achieving this transition could be a tiny fraction of global GDP per year. The document was released in Berlin, from where the BBC's David Shookman reports. The authors acknowledge that a transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy is easier to recommend than to achieve. Many countries are locked in to using fuels like coal. Here in Germany, coal provides nearly half the electricity. But because greenhouse gases are building up in the atmosphere so rapidly, the conclusion is that it's better to make the change sooner rather than later. Professor Jim Ski of Imperial College is a leading figure on the panel. 
the message is that we need to start from 2020 onwards. If you wait as long as 2030 to put in place measures, it is going to start to get difficult. Emissions have risen more quickly in the last 10 years than they have at any point in the past. And if we carry on in that kind of way till 2030, then you will be faced with these difficult choices. We need to move much more quickly than that. One surprise is a low estimate for the cost of phasing out fossil fuels and boosting wind and solar power. The panel says that less than one-tenth of one percent will be shaved off annual global growth. However, this figure rests on a host of assumptions, and for the moment, renewable energy still needs subsidies, which raises questions about public acceptance, according to Max Ball of the Canadian energy company Sask Power. Whether or not society ultimately is willing to pay the necessary price to avoid climate change, we'll have to wait and see. The trend towards renewables, for example, is starting to see some pushback as people begin to realize it's not free. The panel says that in the short term, power stations could switch from burning coal to gas, which is cleaner and could act as a bridge to low-carbon alternatives. It's a suggestion that many governments will welcome as pragmatic, and the panel does believe its options are feasible, and it hopes they'll be implemented in the coming years. One of the consequences of mobile phones and the Internet is that we're always connected. It's one of the reasons work has pervaded our home life, but most of us are still not expected, are, are not expected to make private calls during our work time. So why should we be expected to take work calls when we're at home? A million French workers have signed up to a legally binding agreement that says staff should switch off their phones at 6 o'clock every evening. Is it something the rest of the world should aspire to, or is it unworkable? Here are the views of a couple of commentators, one French and one British. First up is Benedict Paviot, a UK correspondent for France 24, followed by Kate Bevan, the Guardian's newspaper and technology and social media correspondent. I'm in the phone book. It's all about work-life balance, and it's about the difference in the values and the belief that is really important to work to live and not to live to work. And that is the fundamental difference that is viewed from across the channel as existing in Britain. here in the UK is we have one device for home and for work. So this is it. We have one device that sort of does it all. And that would be a challenge for us because, you know, which, what is work and what is home? Sometimes the blur is, you know, quite intense, quite a big overlap. The fact of the matter is that you will really have to drag a Frenchman or Frenchwoman kicking and screaming uh, from these kinds of values because they really do believe that it, life can't be just all about work. Maybe that's the answer as well, the division of home and work. We blur it when we're at work and at home. Maybe that's the answer, just you know, shut off home and focus on work for that time and then you can say no. Benedict Pavio there from France 24 and Kate Bevan from the Guardian newspaper in the UK. Well, we're now joined by RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Barry, good morning again. Hey, hello, Mike. <laughs> I like that report. 
support. <laughs> Did you what indeed. about Hong Kong? Nice That's where all the, all the work gets done, isn't it? They say that about the Yanks, but I think you work even harder over there. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but uh, I know I certainly don't take any personal calls here at uh, RTHK <laughs> when I'm working. Um, just a quick look. Asian financial markets, uh, markets not surprisingly down a bit this morning in early trade. The Nikkei off about a tenth of a percent. Australia's ASX 200 down about a quarter of a percent. No great surprise considering what happened in Wall Street on Friday and indeed over the past week. Yeah, that's true, Mike. I think that uh, U.S. markets are setting the standard at the moment in terms of movement elsewhere. But, you know, Europe has done pretty well, and the Americans have done exceedingly well over the last four years. You've had a doubling, and we're due for a correction. I don't think this is anything more than a correction, but, um, you know, steady economic growth in Europe, sorry, in North America, and at least some economic growth in Europe, I think, gives some kind of base to the market. And I think the markets here are likely to, over time, over the next month or so, resume their upward advance. Just going to the NASDAQ and their biotech index, that's down now a fifth from its record closing high on February the 25th. What's going on there? Why, why, is there, why has there been such a big sell-off? has been a tremendous amount of hedge fund activity, and there has been a lot of uh, people who are making a lot of money by going in and out of the NASDAQ, particularly in the biotechs. You're right. I mean, if you go back further, Mike, you see a 40% drop in these biotechs. You know, we're still haunted in one sense by what happened in 2000. I know that's almost 14 years ago, but the fact is that uh, the NASDAQ bubble, the high-tech bubble, is still talked about a lot. And there was concern that this was another bubble in the making. And it wasn't just biotech. I mean, Twitter has come off a lot. I see here that Twitter is off, what, 17% from its peak. And no, it's down 43% from its peak. And, you know, this is, this is a, uh, an initial public offering just a few months ago. So this is a healthy development, I think. But there's a lot of high-frequency trading in here. And Let's face it, a lot of manipulation that's gone on. So this is, I think, on balance, a good thing. Do you think uh, trading in, uh, on Wall Street this week is going to be largely dominated by earnings reports, which are going to start pouring in? Yeah, I think so, Mike. Uh, you know, the economy is doing better. I, mean, I know that I've repeated this too often, but we've come off a terrible winter here, which really did slow economic activity in the northeast, the plains, and even in the mountain far west. So, you know, things are now springtime blossoms all over, and I think we're going to really pick up. Autos have done very well. Now, GM General Motors accepted because of their specific problem. But I do think that earnings are going to be okay, and I think the basic economy is going to get better. So, yeah, I would, uh, if you ask me uh, which way is it going to go, I'd say that on balance things look better than they do worse. You talk, though, about the brutal winter the U.S. Has, has suffered. Isn't that going to show up in the first quarter earnings? Yeah, I think it's – well, I don't know what's going to be in earnings because, you know, so much of what is happening with those big blue-chip American companies is activity elsewhere, particularly in your part of the world. And let's not forget that South America has done very well. South America, which has been pretty much an American corporate preserve, that's where, you know, Caterpillar and so many of the industrial firms, General Electric, 
very active there. Earnings are going to be strong from Latin America. The dollar has been steady. Europe, you know, with all of its problems, I think uh, American firms do well, and particularly in your part of the world. So I'm not sure that the weather is going to have a great impact on first quarter earnings. And what about banks, though? We, we saw some sort of weak, weak results, didn't we, last week on, on First Bank's reporting? Yeah, I think that uh, is a weak sector. And it's largely because the Federal Reserve and the new regulatory body here in D.C. is really, you know, putting the screws to the banks. They're not popular publicly, certainly not in the Congress. And banks are being forced to put up far more capital. This hurts the banks. They're also under attack for their lending policies. So lending has not been strong. Banks are going to be weak. I think that's probably the weakest sector in the economy, and you probably can't find any quick turnaround there. Well, this week uh, you are in Washington, where you live, and it's been a big week in Washington, hasn't it, with the World Bank and IMF meeting? Yeah, you know, it's an amazing thing. I confess that I enjoy this story because there is such a tremendous networking opportunity, even for the spring meetings, which are the the lower of the two meetings. The big one is always in October, and two years out of three, that meeting's in Washington. You've got literally all the finance ministers and central bankers of the world who are in Washington. So the task of a reporter really is just to get around and see samplings of what you can get. I myself, Mike, have found a a lot of interest in BRICS, you know, the grouping of Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Many people speculate, and I know the Financial Times editorialized on this, that the BRICS were going to really hit the wall because of the Russia problem with Ukraine. Well, that didn't happen. The BRICS had two sessions here. They're moving ahead on their their development bank, which is going to be announced at their summit in July in Brazil, right after the World Cup. And they're moving ahead with their contingency reserve arrangement, which would be to use each other's currency if any of the members got into trouble. So that was underreported this week, but I think significant. But if I could just go on for a moment, I think that um, there's tremendous puzzlement and anger about the United States failing to support an organization that some would argue it controls. And, you know, how can you explain this? Is it stupidity or ignorance in the United States Congress? Are people unaware that the United States has a veto power in an organization that's promoting free markets, open trade, foreign direct investment, market-determined exchange rates, market-determined interest rates? I mean, that's what the IMF does. Or, as they like to say now, it is the first responder to financial crises. This is clearly, for 70 years since its formation, been in the United States foreign economic policy priority. And yet the Congress, and it's not just Republicans, Democrats and Republicans and the president, I might add, they don't speak up and say, let's support the IMF. So I think people just scratch their heads and say, this is a very strange country, the USA. Okay, Barry, we'll just have to leave it there for now. But uh, thanks for joining us. The through train of direct cross-border stock trading with China has arrived. The news helped send Hong Kong shares higher last week. But are we in for more gains this week? 
Joining us for a look at investor psychology is Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management. Good morning, Richard. Hello, Chris. So how do, you, uh, how do you read the news last week, and are we due for more uplift this week? Well, of course, this isn't a, a terribly new story. During the subprime crisis in 2007, the authorities also announced that this was likely to take place, that we would see trading between the Shanghai Stock Exchange and Hong Kong. And from the 17th of August 2007 to the height of the market that November, the market rose 55%. So I don't think we're likely to see that happening again. But the interesting thing is that news actually hit the market, uh, first of all, as it was going down, but also at a stage where people were really looking at China, where any company that had China in front of its name was a hot stock. Um, So it was just interesting how the news hit the market at just the right time in 2007. But now we're kind of thinking, well, it's discounted. We've heard it all before. And maybe these things aren't as big as we think. So if, um, it w- would you still be optimistic that there's room for shares to go higher? And if so, what, what shares would you be buying on this? Well, I think in terms of the through train, it's a positive sign. But we've seen lots of positive signs recently, like the Shanghai Free Trade Zone. And we've also got uh, talk of mutual recognition of funds as well. So all of this is leading to perhaps a lot more cross-border trading between Hong Kong and China. And that generally has to be a good thing, whether it's better for China or better for Hong Kong. I think, is a moot point. Um, But it's almost certainly likely to further develop the Chinese stock exchange and the markets. I I know that a lot of strategists have been upbeat on the shares of Hong Kong exchanges and clearing. That had a huge jump on uh, Thursday on the news. I'm wondering if that can go any higher. And and, uh, we had a guest on Thursday as well, speaking about uh, Sean Darby, he was very upbeat on HKEX. Are, are you also a fan of the stock? Well, you know, the thing about HKEX is it's the first port of call for this particular story. Um, when it happened in 2007, the stock basically doubled. Here we're up about 12%, something like that, 15%. Um, I think we've probably seen it as it is there. I think what we need to see is uh, a true increase in volumes. We need to see markets actually put the money where people's mouth is at the moment before we really see uh, a substantial move in in that stock and indeed in the stock market as a result of the story. And what else are you watching this week? Well, actually, the, some of the interesting things uh, coming back from last week is, of course, the big fall on Thursday in the U.S. in the tech stocks, um, uh, which sort of fitted in with what I call the Thursday effect. Often you see markets um, uh, react or uh, take account of news on a Thursday. Um, and I guess it's probably because people come in to work on Monday, do some analysis. By Wednesday, they're putting their orders on, and Thursday the market gets hit. But the interesting thing is what happens on the Friday, because very often what traders want to do is flatten their books ahead of the weekend. So Friday is often uh, a relatively mediocre market. And as we saw last Friday, the market was down maybe half a percent. So I think that although we had quite a big fall in tech stocks and biotech stocks and those kind of things um, on the Nasdaq market and also on the small stock markets in the U.S. Um, I think that what we're seeing here is, as Barry was saying a moment ago, a correction rather than the start of a big fall. So that's partly because there's momentum traders that are buying into the uptrend, and as soon as that seems to kind of pause, they, they get out of the market, and that sends things down sharply. Yes, and also, you, you know, it's interesting when you look at these psychological factors. Um, Friday, of course, is ahead of the weekend. Nobody wants to be caught too long or too short over the weekend. So people will level out their positions. So they'll take a bit of a bet on a Thursday, level out their positions on Friday. Of course, when the markets are in a difficult position, we may well see 
a lot of selling continue on the Friday as well, um, and that's usually a bad sign. But where we have a weak Thursday and maybe a not-so-weak Friday or market recovery on Friday, that usually indicates that people are rounding off their positions and they're not as convinced that the market is bad news as, as you might think on Thursday. Given that we have a shortened trading week this week, would you see... Any implications? Could there be a Wednesday sell-off instead of a Thursday sell-off? Yeah, you know, that can happen. And, uh, of course, the markets are are very subject to new news coming around. Um, Don't forget that a lot of the rest of the world doesn't have the long Easter holiday. The the U.S. doesn't. China doesn't. So it's kind of an unusual time when we're closed and other people are open. Um, And clearly, if quite a lot of happens on the Thursday and the Friday and the following Monday, then uh, we'll take it all on the nose on Tuesday. Now, very often our Tuesday prices will be a consolidation, really, of what happens on the Friday and Sunday when we're closed. Well, hang on, hang on, uh, on, on, on there with me, uh, Richard. Uh, I just want to introduce a, a sound clip from our next guest, and maybe we can discuss it as, uh, as we go along. Uh, liquidity conditions in the U.S. look set to remain loose this quarter, even as the Fed continues with its taper. One reason is that many Americans will pay their income taxes this month. So what are the implications for stock prices? In an earlier interview, I spoke with Richard Duncan. He's an independent economist and author of the investment newsletter MacroWatch. Right. In the second quarter, we're going to have record amounts of excess liquidity still. And that's because even though the Fed is printing less money per month than it was last year, is still printing $55 billion a month. And overall, in the second quarter, it will create something like $150 billion and inject that into the financial markets. So that's an injection of liquidity into the financial markets. Now, the main, uh, the main source that absorbs liquidity out of the financial markets is the government borrowing to fund its budget deficit. But in the second quarter since Americans have to pay taxes in April. In the second quarter, the government's not likely to have a budget deficit. In fact, it could have a meaningful budget surplus this quarter. So the government won't be absorbing any liquidity, while the the Fed will be injecting in $150 billion of liquidity. So that suggests that we're going to have a great deal of excess liquidity this quarter. And to me, that raises the possibility that asset prices could uh, stock prices could keep moving significantly, perhaps significantly higher before mid-year. Now, of course, it's a question of will the markets discount in advance the fact that liquidity begins to dry up in the third quarter and become significantly negative in the fourth quarter. Well, that's that's always difficult to to say. The stock market had a, a rough night last night and at the end of last week, but still it's very near its all-time record high levels. I believe that's because of the excess liquidity that the Fed has been pumping into the markets to to drive the economy. So I I would, although of course I don't know for sure, but I would expect this excess liquidity to continue to support the stock stock markets during the second quarter. But then things are likely to become rough in the third quarter and very rough in the fourth quarter, up until the point when the Fed announces that it's going to stop tapering and perhaps even increase the amount of quantitative easing that it does each month. I also asked Richard Duncan about the outlook for China after recent data showed that exports are cooling. China has been flooding Asia with a great deal of liquidity now since this crisis started. 
Um, and even before that, in fact, because you can tell from China's foreign exchange reserves, which are rapidly approaching $4 trillion, how much fiat money the PDLC is, is creating. In order to accumulate $4 trillion of, fiat, of foreign exchange reserves, the PBOC has had to print $4 trillion worth of yuan, and that's what they've done over the last decade and a half. And so that's been a major contributor to global liquidity. The PBOC's balance sheet now is above $5 trillion in total. That's, that's more than the Fed's balance sheet or the ECB or the Bank of Japan. It's got the largest balance sheet in the world. So China has been contributing a great deal of liquidity uh, for more than a decade. And since the crisis started, they have allowed the banks to run amok. Bank loans are up almost 150% since 2009. And a lot of that money has been flooding into Hong Kong and Singapore and Melbourne and Sydney and Vancouver and Toronto and London and New York and helping to push up asset prices there. So China's challenge now, of course, is that its economic growth model is in crisis. Export-led growth is coming to an end. We just saw exports were down 6% last month and imports dropped 11%. And investment-fueled growth is also coming to an end. And moreover, now the credit-fueled economic growth, that is destabilizing. So China is facing very serious challenges, um, in large part because the, the global economy is weak, and that you can trace back to the weakness in the U.S. economy. That's Richard Duncan, uh, an independent economist and author of Macro Watch, speaking to me there late last week. Uh, Richard in the studio here, what did you make of those comments? Uh, he's not that p- particularly upbeat about China, given the export slowdown. What do you think? Well, I think certainly the export slowdown has been a big problem for China. And China's really very much dependent on how the rest of the world works. If the economies pick up in the rest of the world, as they have been doing, then uh, the Chinese export market will pick up. And, and that's a good thing. But China obviously has a lot of transitions to work through at the moment, and that's really been the key issue there. I know, I, in an earlier part of the, the conversation, I didn't air, I know Richard speaks a lot about Fed policy and that the tapering actually could be reversed later this year. No one's talking about that yet, but he says that's the major point to be watching. Well, I, th- I think tapering's pretty important. I, he looks like an economist that looks at liquidity only. Of course, uh, you also have to look at how expensive these stocks are, uh, how the economic growth is progressing, those sort of things. And what everyone's hoping is economic growth is going to outpace the fact that liquidity is going to be cut back. But I'm pretty confident that Janet's Janet Yellen, the uh, chairman of the Fed, has got her mind on this, and she's not going to let the liquidity get so tight that it's going to impact the markets in a, in a particularly difficult way. Okay, thank you, Richard. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. That's Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management. Uh, I think we're on to the news next with Samantha Butler. Russia has called an urgent meeting of the United Nations Security Council to discuss escalating tensions in eastern Ukraine. Radio Australia's Barbara Miller reports. 
The call for the urgent Security Council session came after the acting Ukrainian president, Alexander Churchinov, announced that the country's armed forces would launch a full-scale assault on pro-Russian militants holding government and police buildings in Ukraine's east. The president gave the militants until Monday morning local time to vacate the buildings or face attack. In an address carried live on state television, President Turchinov urged Ukrainians not to be tools in what he called a cynical foreign war against their own country. The US and NATO have again also stated that they believe Russia is controlling events in eastern Ukraine, claims Moscow denies. President Bashar al-Assad of Syria has said the three-year-old civil war in his country is turning in his favour. In an address to students in Damascus, Mr. Assad said his army was defeating what he called terrorists seeking to overthrow him. From Damascus, here's the BBC's Lise Doucette. President Assad spoke of a war turning in his government's favour on a number of fronts. His military, backed by Lebanon's Hezbollah fighters, has made important advances in recent months, including the recapture of key towns along the Lebanese border. It's also reached local truces with rebel groups in some Damascus suburbs after months of a punishing siege. But fighting intensifies in other areas, including the northern city of Aleppo. And there's no political solution in sight to end a devastating war. Partial results from the presidential election in Afghanistan show a former foreign minister, Abdullah Abdullah, is in the lead. With 10% of ballots counted,